Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 20. This will be the final Sunday, by the way, of us taking a break from First Samuel as we have throughout the holidays. Of course, our intention is to make a regular habit of preaching through books of the Bible. And we started on First Samuel last year, and we will continue on picking up in chapter 9 beginning next week. But this Sunday, we want to take one more Sunday, as we do every year here in this Sunday, just before the new year, to talk about the power of the truth of God's Word in our life. And so we're going to see that from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 32. Well, let me read for us from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 32, and then we'll take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, now by the way, this is the apostle Paul calling for the elders of the church of Ephesus, and then he is speaking to them here, continuing on verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. Father, you have been so patient, gentle, and merciful to us over this past year. You've been gentle, patient, and merciful to us this day already. And we know that all of that goodness was purchased by Jesus on the cross, that we deserve none of it. And so, Father, we just proclaim together this morning that we are here 
only because of what Christ has done, because of his perfect righteous life lived in our place, because of his all-sufficient substitutionary death died in our place, and because of the power of his resurrection and the spirit that you have sent to dwell in us. Father, we are thankful that you have sent your spirit to awaken us to these glorious truths. And Father, we're thankful that you have spoken to us in your word. And so by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, Father, we ask that you would be at work in us this morning. Father, I pray that what we see in Acts chapter 20 this morning would be a divinely given motivation to make the Word of God a central part of our lives in the year to come, in this church and in our lives individually. Father, I pray that we would be a different people corporately, that we would be different people individually as we come to the end of 2024, because we have been a people of your Word over this next coming year. And so, Father, we pray that you would do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So every year we set aside this Sunday, this Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, the Sunday that happens just before New Year's, to emphasize the importance of God's word in our lives in the coming year. And of course, that is always challenging because this is always kind of a strange Sunday, right? Sandwiched between Christmas and New Year's. A lot of people are still traveling. Everybody's still kind of in a Christmas trance almost, right? You're just kind of recovering from visiting with family and, and all the busyness of the season and it's just a lot going on. But even, even with that being the case, I can think of no better way to get our hearts and minds ready for the new year than to spend our morning together being reminded of the power of making God's word a priority in our lives in this coming year and in the life of our church. Now, I know the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about something like Bible reading and New Year's, you start to think about New Year's resolutions. And if I'm being honest, I have mixed feelings about New Year's resolutions. I can be quite cynical when it comes to New Year's resolutions. But And I have mixed feelings because I think there are ways that people can handle New Year's resolutions that that can actually be destructive, but I also think there are ways that it can actually be spiritually helpful. So just let me take a moment to, to speak to both those dangers and how they can be helpful as we gear up for a new year of Lord willing being in the truth of his word. So, so here, here's the danger. The danger is that tonight when the clock strikes midnight and we bring in a new year, that somehow in your heart and mind, you think that the starting of a new year wipes your slate clean. And all the shortcomings, all the sin, all the wickedness that you have been guilty of over the past year or years goes away and you get a fresh start. That's destructive. And I don't say that because I want you to feel guilty in 2024. That's not why I say that. In fact, I want you that guilt to be removed from you. But what I want to say to you is that doesn't happen simply because we start a new calendar year. You don't have to wait till tonight. Right now, you can repent of your sin, confess your sin to Jesus, and he will forgive you of all your unrighteousness. So 1 John says to us, so don't turn a new year into a false gospel. Your slate is wiped clean by the blood of Jesus, not by the start of a new calendar year. I think that's a legitimate concern. I think it's one that needs to be stated. But But even though I have that concern, and even though, as I mentioned, I can sometimes be a bit cynical about 
New Year's resolutions, I also believe there is great value in evaluating our relationship with Jesus, evaluating our spiritual disciplines, our walk with Christ, how we have been doing, and how we hope to do in the year to come. There is great value in doing that. In fact, I think it's important to remember in Genesis 1, in the creation account, we are reminded that God gave us the stars and the moon and and all of these things so that we can measure days and years. The measuring of time, years, are, are not a man-made invention. They were given to us by God. So a, a year is a gift of God, and I think it can be a helpful way to evaluate our walk, walk with Christ, to pray, to set some spiritual goals for our lives in the year to come. And every year, part of that praying and thinking and planning should be thinking about how you intend to engage with God's Word in the year to come. So I want to take this morning to challenge all of us, myself included, to pursue God's Word in the coming year, to make God's Word a priority in our lives. And I know of no better way to do that than to simply look at what God's Word says to us about the power, the sufficiency, and the sanctifying power of God's Word in our lives and in the life of this local church. Some may argue that's a circular argument. So you're going to look to God's Word to tell you how truthful God's word is. Well, it is a circular argument. But here's the reality we all need to just be comfortable with. Any foundational truth must make claims about itself. If you think your human reason is ultimate authority, how do you know that? By your human reason, right? It is always a circular argument. If something is a foundational truth, it must claim that it is true and authoritative. And so it being circular doesn't mean it's an illegitimate argument. It is just us stating that we believe God's word is truth. It holds authority in our life. And therefore, we are going to listen to what it says to us about itself this morning. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 32 to do that. Now, this is not a passage that you would often think of or that is often taken up when the importance of Scripture is talked about or preached about. But I think it's a powerful place to see the dedication to and confidence in the Word of God that the Apostle Paul has as he gives these parting last words to the elders of Ephesus. And I think it's particularly important because it is, from Paul's perspective, and was his last words to these elders. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows, and he's wanting to get there. He's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, and he had established many churches throughout his ministry, but he wants to make it to Jerusalem before Pentecost, but yet he wants to check in with some churches on his way there, but he doesn't have time to take detours to kind of dip down toward Ephesus. He doesn't have time to do that. So so on his way, instead of going to Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem, he asked the elders of the local church, of the church of Ephesus, to come meet him so that he can share some words with them, some truth with them, some encouragement with them before he heads on to Jerusalem. He wants to speak to them one final time. You saw that as we read here. He says he knows he's not going to see their face again. These are his last words to them. And he had spent two, between two and three years with them. There with these people. He was close to the Ephesian church and to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Therefore, we need to pay close attention to what Paul has to say. Because this is a reality that all of you know when someone believes they are speaking 
their final words to someone, they choose their words carefully. These are not throwaway words. Of course, it's in the Bible, so it wouldn't have been anyway. But it's just to say that these are Paul's parting words, his last words to the Ephesian elders. And his main driving concern, as you will see, is that these elders, these pastors, fully appreciate the importance of keeping the word of God central to all that they do individually and as leaders of a local church. So Paul is here giving his final instructions to them. And what I want us to see in these final words of Paul to the Ephesian elders is the sufficiency and the sanctifying power of the word of God in this passage. So there are three ways that Paul demonstrates the importance of God's word as he says these final words to the Ephesian elders. Number one, he speaks of the sacrifice for the word. Number two, the sufficiency of the word. And number three, the sanctifying power of God's word. Sacrifice for the word, sufficiency of the word, the sanctifying power of the word. So number one, sacrifice for the word. Look there with me again, beginning of verse 17, verses 17 through 21. You see there in verse 17, he is, he's traveling, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he is in Miletus, which is directly on the way to Jerusalem. So he sends to Ephesus, and he calls for the elders, the pastors of the church of Ephesus, to come to him. This would not have been a short trip for them. Estimates vary wildly about how far that would have been, but it's at least 30 miles or more that they would have traveled. So this was, remember, there weren't cars. This wasn't a quick trip. This would have been a couple of day long trip to go see the Apostle Paul. But of course, if he asked for them to come, they are going to go see him. They, they wanted to hear from him, hear what he had to say to them. And so he begins there in verse 18 by reminding them of what they saw him prioritize when he was with them. You see that in verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Not part of the time that I was with you, but Paul is saying, look, this is how I conducted myself among you the whole time that I was with you. And he says, look, I faced some, some really difficult situations while I was there. Verse 19, serve the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. This was not an easy time of ministry for Paul. There were constant adversaries to his ministry in Ephesus. In fact, just in the previous chapter to chapter 20 and in chapter 19 of Acts, we, we see kind of an example of what it was like for Paul while he was in Ephesus. In chapter 19, we're told that the silversmiths who would forge uh, silver shrines to, to false gods, to Artemis, they had a market in Ephesus, right? They made a lot of money making these false uh, idols, these false shrines, these silver shrines for the people to buy up and to use. And they were upset because Paul and his companions were killing their business, right? Claiming that, no, this isn't the true God, that Jesus, the, the triune God, is the one true God. And so these silversmiths stir up a riot, and they drag Paul and some of his companions into a theater. And the crowd, they gather this crowd who is furious. They are furious with Paul and his companions. Paul wants to go to the theater to defend his friends, but he has other friends that say, 
no, you don't need to go. You stay safe here. They're going to be okay. His friends are dragged there into the theater. And the crowd is so furious about the threat to their false god, Artemis, that they cried out for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. So when, when Paul says, in my time with you, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me, not only through this worship of Artemis, but through also the plots of the Jews who were continually trying to undermine him and physically harm him. Even while all that was happening, what does Paul say he was committed to? Verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's point here as he speaks to the Ephesian elders is not to complain about his time in Ephesus. No, his point is to say that he refused to let those tears and those trials and those hardships keep him from remaining focused on what he needed to remain focused on, which was namely declaring to them what was profitable. And even when necessary, going from house to house to be sure the saints were discipled and growing in the truth of God's word. So what the, the word shrink here, to shrink back, means to withdraw, to, to move back from. Paul says he refused. It didn't matter what the threat he faced was. It didn't matter what sacrifice he had to make. He was not going to shrink back or step back from remaining committed to his purpose and to his mission among the Ephesians. He was committed to God's word every moment. Remember, that's what he says earlier. Remember how I lived among you the whole time I was there. The whole time I was there, I was committed, verse 20, to teaching you in public and from house to house. This is what Paul gave his life to, regardless of the suffering he may have endured in his time in Ephesus. And so what Paul is saying to these Ephesian pastors, these Ephesian elders is that they are going to need to make sacrifices for the teaching of God's word. And he says to them, it's worth it. It's worth it. Doesn't matter what it may cost you. It doesn't matter how many tears you may shed, how many trials you may endure. Remaining committed to teaching and instruction from the truth of God's word is with it. And so I say to us this morning, I say to Christ Fellowship Liesel this morning, the word of God is worth it. It's worth giving our time to. It's worth giving our attention to. It's worth giving our best thoughts and our best efforts. It's worth wrestling with and studying to seek to understand it. And according to Paul, it's even worth suffering for and making sacrifices for. Why? Because the word of God contains the words of life. Apart from God's word, we would be cut off from any certain knowledge of of who God is, what he has done, what he is going to do in the world, what promises he has made. We would be cut off from the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel and repentance that comes through faith in Christ. We would be cut off from resting and understanding and having the knowledge of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We would be cut off from seeing the beauty and the glory of Christ on display in the truth of God's word. Therefore, by God's grace, let's strive not to neglect God's word in the coming year. Let's remain committed to it, even as Paul was committed to it when he ministered among the Ephesians, even in the midst of trials and hardship and the plots of the Jews and suffering. He was committed to teaching and instruction, week in and week out, 
the whole time he was there in Ephesus. But we also see Paul speaking to, secondly, the sufficiency of God's word, the sufficiency of God's word. Look there with me at verses 22 to 27. Paul says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, meaning he knows that this is exactly where the Spirit wants him to go. He is under the control of the Holy Spirit, and he must get to Jerusalem. And so he's going, not fully knowing what's going to happen to him there, but he knows for certain, verse 23, that imprisonment and afflictions await him. He knows that's what's going to happen when he finally arrives in Jerusalem. But he's going to go anyway because that's where the Spirit has called him to go. And verse 24 makes clear that he's not really concerned about his life. That's not of the greatest importance to him. What is of great greatest importance to Paul is completing the ministry that God has given him. You see that powerful statement in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I'm going to proclaim the gospel no matter what it costs. And therefore, as we've already mentioned, verse 25, he lets the elders know that this is the last time he's going to see them. This is it. He knows that he's never going to see them again in this life anyway. And so listen to what he says to them in verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, I want us to just sit on these two verses for a few minutes. Paul says he is innocent of the blood of all because he declared to them the whole counsel of God. So what does he mean when he says that he is innocent of the blood of all? What, what is he talking about? Well, I think it's clear that Paul is reaching back and referencing in his mind Ezekiel chapter 33. In Ezekiel chapter 33, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and he's giving him the illustration, giving Ezekiel the illustration of the man who's in the watchtower of a city. And that man is looking out for any enemy who may be coming to ravage the city. So let me read for you from Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. If he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. So just pause there. What that is saying is, look, if the watchman in the tower blew the horn, blew the trumpet and said, hey, the enemy's coming. And if that person did nothing after hearing the warning and yet the sword comes and takes him away, it's the person's fault for not heeding the warning. It's not the fault of the watchman in the tower because he did his job. But Ezekiel 33 verse 6 goes on to say, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. 
So if the watchman whose job it is to blow the trumpet, to warn the people, fails to do so, and the people die because he didn't warn them, their blood is on his hands. With that imagery in mind, Paul says again in verses 26 and 27, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul's saying, I've given you everything you need because I've taught you the truth of God's word. For Paul, that would have been the Old Testament scriptures. It would have been these letters that he wrote, interpreting, explaining the Old Testament scriptures that we have in our Bibles. Paul says, look, I gave you everything that you've needed. God's word has been sufficient for you. It's not on me anymore. I am innocent of your blood. What you do with what you have been taught is now what matters because I've given you what you need because I've given you the truth of God's word. There is, of course, always more to learn. There's always more to grow in our understanding of God's word. But the point here is that they have been taught everything that's necessary to sustain their faithfulness, and they can't lay the blame at Paul's feet if they fell. Paul has this confidence. He can say this because he has confidence in the truth of God's word. Right? He knows that he didn't waste his time teaching them about philosophies or world or all this other stuff. No, he, he taught them God's word. And because he taught them God's word, he's innocent of their blood, and he knows he has given them what is necessary for them to remain faithful to the end so that they might dwell with Christ for all eternity. Listen, this is, this is one of dozens of reasons why we mainly practice sequential expository preaching in this church, meaning we just preach through books of the Bible. And the reason we do that is because I don't want my favorite books of the Bible or my favorite biblical topics or some trending cultural issue of the day or some felt need that you we may think you have or may not have to sway what we're teaching on Sunday morning. If we allowed any of those things, current events, felt needs, my favorite topics, my hobby horses, my soapboxes, if we allowed any of that to determine what we are going to preach week in and week out, you will not have the whole counsel of God's word and your blood is going to be on my hands. And so instead, with patience and diligence, week in and week out, we're just going to work our way through the Bible. That's why we have men's Bible study going through a book of the Bible. That's why we have women's Bible study going through a book of the Bible. That's why we talk about sermons in our life groups. We want the word of God to be at the center of all that we do. The elders of this church, we don't want to have your blood on our hands. We don't want your eternal condemnation, if that were to occur, to be because we held back, because we somehow shrunk back from declaring to you the truth of God's word, which is why we must take so seriously the requirements of elders that are given to us in 1 Timothy 3. It says they must be able to teach. This is why. This is why they must be able to teach. It's why James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We're going to be held accountable. So let me make just two additional comments here before we move into the third section. One, Christians cannot claim ignorance on the last day. All right, so if you, you, you cannot claim ignorance on the last day if you knowingly stayed in a church that did not faithfully teach and preach God's word, a church that shrunk back from declaring the whole counsel of God. If you are in a church like that, and you are knowingly in a church like that because it has some better thing, it has a better 
children's program or has a better youth program or has whatever you fill in the blank. If you're doing that because that church has a better whatever, but that church does not declare to you the whole counsel of God's word, if it does not teach faithfully and you are knowingly there, it's not the church's fault. That's on you. You must go to a place where you will be exposed to the whole counsel of God's word. I'm not saying God will not hold that church accountable. He certainly will, but you need to not be there any longer. And that's even true of this church. If we fail to declare the whole counsel of God's word, if we fail to faithfully seek to teach God's word, then you need to leave. I plead with you to leave and find a church that is faithful. I want to be clear, I'm not making any claim that we are unique. There are many healthy churches in the Raleigh-Durham area, and I am thankful to God for them. But let's just be sure that we are committed to churches that faithfully teach and preach God's word. The second implication of this rests on us individually, because in our modern era, in our particular place, in our particular time, in our particular culture, we have access to God's word that historically people did not have. In, in Paul's day, illiteracy was rampant. Most of the people would not have been able to read. They certainly, even if they could read, probably didn't have copies of the scriptures in their hands. And so to engage with God's word, they had no choice. They had to gather with God's people to hear the word read, right? It was precious to them to hear it read and to hear it taught. And, and we need to continue to do that as God's people. But, but here's, here's the reality in our place and time and culture, you have such easy and immediate access to the whole counsel of God's Word anytime you want it. Most of you have multiple Bibles laying on shelves in your house, right? There, there's no excuse for you, for me, to not be in God's Word on a regular basis, to expose yourself to the whole counsel of God's Word. So yes, it needs to be happening in the local church, but also needs to be happening in your life individually. Expose yourself to the truth of God's word by making it a priority to read God's word on a regular, even daily basis. Now, again, as I said, that doesn't demean the need for teachers in the local church. The elders, pastors of local churches are God's plan. It's what he instituted, and so they are good gifts from God to God's people, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't also pursue further knowledge through Bible reading on your own so that you can be exposed to even more of the truth of God's Word. Because here's the reality. The more you read the Bible on your own, the more meaningful the sermons each week will be. And the more meaningful the sermons each week are, the better you are at reading your Bible. And the better you are at reading your Bible, the deeper you're going to understand the sermons each week. And that's going to, it's a beautiful glorious spiral of growing and godliness that will happen in your life if you make God's word a priority in your individual life in 2024. And finally, number three, I want us to see the sanctifying power of God's word, the sanctifying power of the word. Look there with me at verses 28 to 32. Paul is giving instructions to the elders of this local church at Ephesus. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Listen, we could spend a whole sermon on verse 28. These are staggering words, challenging words 
for elders, for pastors of local churches. One, we have an obligation to be sure we are paying close attention to our own lives, to our own walk with Christ and to the flock. But listen, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We are elders of this church because God has made us so by direction of his Holy Spirit through the wisdom of God's people. And our job, verse 28, is to to care for his church, for his local church. Here it's for the local church in Ephesus. For us here it's for the local church of Christ Fellowship Leesville. And Paul says, look, this church has been obtained, has been bought by the blood of Christ. What a humbling, overwhelming responsibility. Remember, these are not throwaway words from Paul. Paul says, look, this is how precious my people are to me. This is how precious my local church is to me. Jesus shed his blood for them. Me or no other man, no other elder in this church or otherwise can stand up under that weight of burden. That we have a responsibility to care for a people that Jesus shed his blood for? That Jesus redeemed, the, for whom Jesus laid down his life on the cross, taking the wrath of God in their place, declaring it is finished on the cross, shedding his blood. He did that for his people. He did that for you, for this local church. And we as elders are, have to care for those who are so precious. How do we do that? Well, Paul tells them exactly how to do that in verses 29 through 32. He says, look, first of all, I know that fierce wolves are going to come in and they're not going to spare the flock. He even gives warning in verse 30 that it could rise up from among the elders themselves to draw the disciples away by twisted truths. So you all need to be on alert. You need to hold your elders accountable because we can be deceived also, right? This is the warning. It would be pride and arrogance to say it can't happen to us. No, it could. So I plead with you to don't let it happen to us. Hold us accountable. And we as elders need to hold one another accountable to be sure that this doesn't happen. But we protect ourselves from these false teachers, from these fierce wolves, because the church for whom Jesus shed his blood is worth it. Verse 31, therefore, be alert, be on guard, remembering, and there Paul's looking back to the testimony of his life again, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Every day I did not give, on, give up on giving instructions about the truth of God's word to you so that you would fully know the whole counsel of God so that Paul says, I would be innocent of your blood. But listen to these final instructions that Paul gives, this final word of encouragement in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So what is it that we as elders should give our lives to if we're going to care for the church of God for whom Jesus shed his blood? What should we be about? Well, Paul says what he leaves them with is, of course, the sovereignty of God, but second the word of his grace. He says, look, God's word itself is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among the saints. These are astonishing words. This is the apostle Paul knowing he's never going to see them again, but yet he says, I can rest in knowing I'm never going to see you again because I know the word of God is sufficient to sanctify you. It's going to build you up it's going to keep you, it's going to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and it will provide for you the inheritance among all those 
who are sanctified. It is capable of protecting you from the wolves, from the false teachers. It is capable of keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus in the midst of trials and hardships and plots and all these other things. Paul says, I leave you in the competent, sufficient, sanctifying, capable hands of the truth of God's word. It can build you up and it will give you the inheritance for all eternity among the saints. The word of God has a sanctifying power in our lives. And it is what God has given us to sustain our faith to the last day. So what I want to say to us is that if the Apostle Paul begins his last words to the Ephesians by telling them that in spite of tears and trials, he was relentlessly committed to teaching them God's word. If the Apostle Paul says that the reason he can be innocent of their blood is because he declared to them the whole counsel of God's word. And if the Apostle Paul told them that the word of God is able to build them up and to give them the inheritance among the saints, even though he would never see them again, if the word of God is able to do all of those things, then certainly we should make it a priority in our church and in our lives. This is what God wants to say to us this morning. How can we neglect such a supremely valuable gift? So my challenge to you going into 2024, my challenge to you this year, as it has been every year and Lord willing will be every year, is to make Bible reading and even scripture memorization a priority in your life this coming year. Last week, we sent out a link in our weekly email to a page on our website that provides numerous Bible reading plan options. I know not every plan is right for every person. That's okay. There's no one plan we're going to hold over your head and say, you've got to do this one. But I would strongly encourage you to click on that link. If you didn't get the email, you can go to our website, ChristFellowshipNC.org. Click on the resources link. There's a link that says Bible reading. We've got close to probably just shy of 10 different plans available. Everything from reading through the New Testament in a year, reading the Bible in a year, reading the Bible in two years. There are all kinds of options. Whatever works for you, the important part is have a plan. Because otherwise, you're going to wake up in the morning, you're going to flip through, what should I read today? Well, I don't feel like reading today. No, no. Create a plan in your life to make God's Word a priority. We also have physical copies in the back of five of those Options. If you want to grab a physical copy, you can fold those in half and just slide it in your Bible and keep it. So there are five different options back there. If none of them are good, there are other options on our website. If none of those work for you, then reach out to me, reach out to Pastor Nathaniel. We will help you find a plan that works for your life. We, we want to do that for you. So please let us know. We, this is so important. It's not about checking a box. It's about having a structured habit in your life to make God's word a priority in the coming year. We want to help you do that because we believe that it is essential for our growth in Christ individually and as God's people together. How could we say otherwise after hearing Paul's parting words to these Ephesian elders? Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed thankful for the truth of your word. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the fact that you freely chose to reveal yourself through words that we can read on a page. Father, we don't deserve the fact that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to give us understanding so that as we read it, we, our eyes are awakened. We can be convicted of sin and transformed by the power of your word. We don't deserve any of these good gifts of grace to us, but you have poured them out on us. 
And so, Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would bring conviction and motivation to our hearts to make the truth of your word a priority in our lives in this coming year. And as I prayed at the beginning, I pray again now. Father, I just pray that 365 days from now, we would look back and realize we have been radically transformed and changed by the truth of your word. We're going to have good weeks. We're going to have bad weeks. We're going to have good months. And we're going to have bad months. But overall, Father, I pray that it would be an a upward curve, an upward trajectory of Christ-likeness because of what you have accomplished in us in this year to come. And we know that you intend to do that by the glorious, sanctifying, sufficient power of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.